It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, August 19th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern at Camp David. President Biden brings together the leaders of South Korea and Japan, reinforcing alliances focused on strengthening military responses. Bringing these countries together um, really has happened because of the shared threats that they are facing. I'm Ryan Schmelz. The search for survivors continues after devastating Hawaiian wildfires. There is still a very active recovery Uh, and now compounding the recovery and identification period. There is the need for housing and immediate needs. And then the questions that are now being asked, why did this happen? This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Deep in the Maryland mountains sits this beautiful property, Camp David. Since Dwight D. Eisenhower, presidents have used this retreat for relaxation and high-stakes diplomacy. For President Biden, this historical location was the perfect setting to set off a new era of Pacific partnership. Today, we've made history with the first ever standalone summit between the leaders of our three countries. The United States, South Korea and Japan are now tied by the Camp David Principles, a military and economic platform that came together only after Japan and South Korea were able to set aside decades of tensions. And so I want to recognize the important work that both of you have done and the political courage, and I mean this sincerely, the political courage that you both demonstrated to resolve difficult issues that would have stood in the way for a long time of a close relationship between Japan and Korea and with the United States. Fox News White House correspondent Jackie Heinrich covered the summit with me here at Camp David, an extraordinary place steeped in history. And clearly, Jackie, what this place has meant for so many peace initiatives seems significant to President Biden. It does. I also think it's not lost on us to see the president standing shoulder to shoulder with the leaders of Japan and South Korea, uh, because just two years ago, the deputy secretary of state, Wendy Sherman, had to do a solo news conference when the Japanese foreign minister refused to appear alongside his South Korean counterpart following a similar trilateral meeting because they've had this history of deep distrust. You know, Japan colonized the Korean peninsula from 1910 uh, through World War II. And so bringing these countries together um, really has happened because of the shared threats that they are facing. I think it's significant, though, that the Biden administration wanted to make clear this is not a new formal alliance. It's not NATO light is sort of how Jake Sherman, uh, the uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, uh, described it. But It also seems to be a starting point. President Biden made notion that success brings more success and other countries are going to see how well this works and maybe it changes their judgment on who they'd rather be aligned with. Well, that's, of course, the objective. You know, what the U.S. is trying to do is be the better alternative to Mm -hmm. China um, because you have Japan and South Korea both trade with China on a huge scale. Uh, China is South Korea's top trading partner, uh, and I believe that they are among the top for Japan as well. Um, 
I think that the fact that they that the U.S. wanted to make clear this was not a new alliance was an effort not to rile China right. because they have for so long wanted to frame this as uh, competition, you know, not necessarily an adversary, but a competitor. Um, and they were very veiled when they were making reference to the threats that China poses in the region. But it's also, you know, this is what was being addressed today. That's really what it is, whether they want yeah. to say it or not. China and North Korea, uh, secondly, are the two biggest threats facing that region for military, economic, um, and diplomatic reasons. Well, and you mentioned China not being singled out. North Korea was. President Biden spent a lot of time talking about how we're going to be sharing more intelligence, we're going to be sharing more information as it relates to this early warning system on North Korean ballistic missile launches when it comes to this malicious uh, cyber activity that, that North Korea does. That really is the existential threat, it seems, to both South Korea and Japan, and maybe that existential threat that was enough to finally, uh, you know, thaw this longstanding diplomatic freeze. Well, I think it, it's the existential threat that they're willing to talk about because they don't trade with North Korea. Um, you know, they said that they're committed to complete denuclearization of the DPRK. I do think that was a significant um, point that came out of this summit. But the fact that they are tiptoeing around the China issue speaks to actually what an existential threat it is to those two countries and to the U.S. because of how intertwined our, their economies are. They cannot just outright threaten China, uh, a nuclear power, to whom they are, you know, mm -hmm. entangled economically. And so this was certainly a step forward in trying to build an alliance that's not an alliance. Uh, and I think that the issues that they committed to do in the future, an annual summit for mm -hmm. sure, more joint military exercises, more information sharing, um, and then a pledge to, to consult with each other for when, when any of those three countries are being threatened. Um, it's got the bones of an alliance, and we could see an alliance come in the future. But I was also very surprised that we didn't hear any questions about whether they discussed how to respond if China were to attack Taiwan. That has to be a top of mind for all three of these leaders. No one in the audience asked that question. I, well, I asked it, but the president didn't <laughs> hear me. He was walking away by the time we got to shout at him. We get that music going. But we didn't get that here, answer, yeah. and that yeah. should be top of everyone's mind because remember, it was in Japan that Biden said that he would defend Taiwan militarily. The White House had to walk that back. They didn't want that to happen again today. The other sort of thing that that seemed to heighten this this relationship is the president talking about, and he said this a lot. The world is at an inflection point. He talked a lot about. Russia and Ukraine. Um, is that maybe the model for a Chinese invasion of Taiwan? Is, is that kind of because all three leaders were kind of asked about their responses to that invasion, which is certainly halfway around the world for the leaders of Japan and South Korea? Well, it's, you know, it's instructive to see what's happening with Russia because China was going to be watching to see how the rest of the world reacts. Are they going to let Vladimir Putin come into a sovereign nation with tanks and kill civilians and and take over a country yeah. without anyone stepping up. Um, that's why the president has been working with NATO allies, especially yeah. to ensure that Ukraine has the power to defend itself. Um, but that is the model for, you know, sending a message to China, basically saying we're going to crush you economically, which has been the effort. Um, 
the, among the U.S. and its allies to hurt Russia's economy, try to convince them to pull back. Uh, and also, we're going to give this country this um, you know, the, the means to defend itself. So, yes, it's the model, um, and it was sort of a foil for them to talk about what might happen uh, if China were to do something like that. Let's talk a little bit about now what happens next. I mean, does the president have other countries in mind as he talks about the sustainability of this new kind of pact moving forward and how countries might view this cooperation between the United States and Japan and South Korea? I mean, is there are, are there more countries in that region that the, 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 the president and the United States are really honing in on to try and convince them to, to join this group and maybe not the Chinese group? Well, we know that um, they've been working with Australia yeah, um, a, lot. a lot. I mean, they probably should have been part of this conversation. I'm, I'm sure that there are going to be other conversations involving Australia coming out of this. But there's reporting that was just out a few minutes ago. Um, Politico is confirming the rumor we had been hearing right. for a while that the president was going to go to Vietnam. Um, they're saying that will happen in December or excuse me, September. So just next month. Right. And sign uh, a, a, a pact there as well. And that's a significant um, I mean, geez, you think about not even that that ancient history, like pretty recent history, that would be a pretty extraordinary move to not just bolster economic ties with Vietnam, but potentially defense ties as well. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think that there's any country the U.S. doesn't want to partner with when it comes to countering China, yeah. because uh, the intelligence analysis has been that uh, China is the biggest threat that the U.S. and you know, rules-based global order faces because they are looking on every, in every sphere, in every realm to, um, you know, remove the, the U.S. as the global superpower, which has defended democratic principles um, and upheld democratic norms. They, and that's why the president talks about autonomy or autocracy, excuse me, versus democracy. Yeah, that's something, too, that, that seemed to, to resonate. I guess the, the question, and it was sort of asked here, but not answered, I think, fully, is this is a long-term alliance that the president wants. Um, elections happen every four years in this country. Both the prime minister of Japan and, and the South Korean president face their own people on a regular basis. In fact, the South Korean president is not polling as well as he once did. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how sustainable is that? I mean, certainly President Biden talked about that in the context of his predecessor in this America first policy that that former President Trump had, maybe reducing our footprint in, in South Korea. So what is the sustainability? How do you make this last from you know, administration to administration, both here and in the two partner nations? Well, I think he was trying to convey the understanding to these two nations that Trump was an anomaly and that the sort of isolationist policies that yeah. defined his administration are not where the American people are and are not where uh, the U.S. will be for years to come. It's certainly something that um, the campaign is going to try to drive home in 2024. It's also something that you're seeing some of the Republican candidates uh, for president talk about, Chris Christie for one. Sure, sure. Um, maybe not the, the ones at the top of the, <laughs> like the Pence pack. Like Yes, about it, exactly. Yeah. But listen, he may be an anomaly on the foreign policy front, but he's the front runner for the Republican nomination by a country mile right now. He is, which is why the question was asked, yeah. because if you're trying to convince the world that America is back, which the president said has been his goal, um, you have to show your staying power. And the polls for the president aren't 
sending that message. Um, he's underwater across the board and has been. But you also have other polls showing that uh, 60%, I think, roughly, of Americans do not want uh, President Trump back in office. They also say they don't want Biden back in office. So we'll see where that goes. But, you know, we're a ways out from the general election. And we'll see how this uh, alliance moves forward. You point out the president potentially making a trip to that part of the world very soon. And we'll see um, how those talks go. Jackie Heinrich, boy, it was a treat to come out here to Camp David. So great to be with you, Jared. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. As of this recording, local officials say over 100 people are dead after the catastrophic wildfires that ripped through the Hawaiian island of Maui earlier this month. While many residents and tourists have evacuated, search and rescue crews are scouring the island looking for the hundreds of people still unaccounted for. The Biden administration has been criticized for its lack of response. Former Hawaiian Representative Tulsi Gabbard told Fox News the residents she's spoken with say government response at all levels has been insufficient. They feel like the government doesn't care about them, and, and that's a horrible, horrible disservice to people who have gone through uh, a kind of loss that, that we can't even imagine. During an event in Wisconsin on Tuesday, President Biden said he and the First Lady were planning a trip to Hawaii to meet with Governor Josh Green. But I don't want to get in the way. I've been to too many disaster areas, but I want to go make sure we got everything they need. I want to be sure we don't disrupt the ongoing recovery efforts. On the local level, the head of the Maui Emergency Management Agency resigned just days after defending the decision not to use sirens to warn residents about the fire, instead utilizing radio, TV, and text alerts, later saying he had no regrets. We treat these as these singular, extraordinary events, and for the people that went through it, that's how it occurred. Former FEMA director Craig Fugate weighs in on what is needed to repair the community. Um, but in my world, I'm seeing again another record-setting tragedy played out that we tend to repeat across the globe. Um, so what I'm seeing is what I would expect to see. Um, I look at the challenges they're facing and the types of uh, situations that we're finding ourselves in where there's a clear divide between those that survived and those that didn't. Uh, there is still a very active recovery uh, and now compounding the recovery and identification period. There is the need for housing and immediate needs. And then the questions that are now being asked, why did this happen? And I think as we're doing that, we need to ask another question, and that is, what do we do differently in the future? And sticking on that housing topic you just brought up, you know, apparently Hawaii had a pretty bad housing crisis before this. What could and should FEMA do to help people who lost their homes? Well, I think, you know, from standpoint of FEMA, they're not going to be able to address the pre-existing conditions, and FEMA only provides temporary housing assistance. That's how Congress has directed FEMA to address the short-term housing issues. Uh, longer term, it's going to be agencies like the Housing and Urban Development, HUD, uh, that provides funding for long-term permanent housing. But I think you're already hearing from the governor and others is this concern about uh, what I call rapid gentrification, that you see this when you go into these areas where there's heavy devastation that are in very desirable areas. 
developers and others are looking for the opportunity to build, uh, develop, uh, and increase the density of those populations. And when you're already dealing with housing crisis and affordable housing, the fear is now you're going to displace more of the local population at the expense of the tourist economy. And is it on the government to kind of address these these potential land transactions that the governor's been warning about that that a lot of people in this area could be taken advantage of? Because in many places of Hawaii, it's it's prime real estate and, and you know, p- people who are potentially greedy could jump on that. Not potentially. They will. I mean, look what happened in Mexico Beach, Florida. Look at what's happening down in Sanibel after Hurricane Ian. Uh, this plays out every time. And that goes back to this idea that uh, if you're not planning ahead of time about how you're going to address this as far as uh, how do you ensure that the residents there are given the ability to rebuild, uh, this will come down to how many had insurance. Uh, it will also come down to what potential long-term solutions are there. Uh, but this is, I think government has, has demonstrated, has been ill-prepared to deal with this rapid gentrification, ex- especially in these areas that are highly desirable and there's plenty of money that will go in uh, and buy this up at distress value in many cases, only to go back and develop it, not for the people there, but for people who want to go there. And what can the government do to address this from you know not happening anymore? You know, this is the problem between having red tape and not having red tape. Everybody wants government to solve the problems after the event, but nobody really wants government to tell them how to live their lives before the event. So what do you do? Do you tell people you can't sell your property to somebody who is going to develop it? I mean, you can have land use planning requirements that limit certain types of development, elevations of buildings, densities, and that will steer away from, you know, the high rise developments. But it doesn't preclude that people looking at this as an opportunity to buy a second home, uh, build back something for them uh, and people there being in a situation of, not really having the resources to rebuild immediately, uh, having a lot of, you know, where am I going to work? Where am I going to school? And may make the decision to sell and move. And that's, again, we've seen this in other places, but it's always this this yin and yang of, do we want to have the regulations before the disaster strikes to guide that kind of growth that we want to preserve our communities and make housing affordable for people that live there? Or we want to come in afterwards and now change the rules and say, well, you can't build, you can't develop, and you can't sell unless you meet these conditions. And kind of moving on here, you know, one of the criticisms we've seen from local officials down in Hawaii is the issue of these sirens that did not go off in certain parts of the island. And there's been officials defended the decision not to sound off those sirens. Was that the right move to make there? You know, that's a Monday morning quarterback. I think what we should do is go in and look at what was done, then ask the question, why was it done? and then go, what do we do differently? One thing that people need to understand, unlike in lots of places where sirens are, you know, more general, in Hawaii, the specific use of those sirens is to warn people of tsunamis when they only have minutes to flee the coast and move inland. And so I could see why there may have been concern if they had not educated the public and had not tested the sirens for other risk that in setting off the sirens, you may have put people into a different situation than what you would expect, that they would have headed inland as the fire was heading down. So I can understand that, but there are other warning systems besides sirens. There's the 
entire emergency alert system, which includes wireless emergency alerts for cell phones. And again, if it's not done early, as we saw a lot of cellular technology went down, uh, we saw phone lines go down, uh, but it goes back to the total uh, package, including your local radio and TV stations that can get word out. So I think, you know, focusing on sirens is like, uh, that's just one of the many things that we need to look at. And this also points out the need why when we look at these disasters, there's a lot of tendency to go, and quite honestly, this is a, a, a significant event, large loss of life. And I can understand there's a lot of anger and concern what happened. But I also think it's an opportunity as a nation to go in and formally review this. And this is something Congress has talked about but hasn't implemented, is creating a disaster safety board equivalent to the National Transportation Safety Board to go in and do thorough reviews, look at what happened, why did it happen? And most importantly, what we need to do differently before the next event occurs. And of course, you know, the, the, when, when we talk about the politics of this, there's always unfortunately going to be that aspect whenever a disaster does hit. And certainly I think we're seeing a little bit of that playing out where there's been criticism of President Biden for saying no comment when he was asked about this while he was in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. And there's also been some criticism that he hasn't addressed this soon enough publicly and made statements soon enough in this situation. Is that a fair criticism or has the federal government done everything it can do as of right now? Well, yeah, the declaration was issued quickly at the request of the governor. Uh, the president had conversations with his FEMA administrator. He directed the response. Uh, in many cases, if he's between briefings, he's probably not wanting to comment, particularly when we have a large number of missing people and loss of life uh, and waits till he gets to formal briefings. And again, this is something I think as a nation, we tend to look at the president uh, is in charge of these things. And the answer is no, it's the governor and local officials. And so you don't want to step on their messaging or get ahead of them. And working behind the scenes in many cases is when is it appropriate? Because this is always the question, when should the president go to this tragedy? And the answer is always as soon as possible, but never to take away from response recovery operations. And so do you feel Monday is an appropriate time? You know, I believe the president said when he was in Wisconsin that he didn't want to get in the way. He wanted to go at the right time. Is it the right time on Monday? That will be the governor telling him that it's the right time. I mean, you think about it. Yeah, everybody talks about, well, the president just can just fly in. Well, you talk about all the security, all the arrangements that have to be made. And those are resources that, quite honestly, are already stretched on, on the island. You don't want to take that away from the response activities. And as the, uh, I think this is a term that's been used before, the role of the consoler in chief is very critical. But we still have an active recovery operation where they're still trying to identify and recover as they, much as they can uh, the remains of people who lost their lives. So I think it's important to always balance that. Yes, it's easy to get in there. And if you get there too early, you're, you're not helping that situation. But uh, again, I've worked with the president when he's vice president. I understand him and how he approaches this. And again, he will go as soon as he can. He knows that he needs to be there. He knows it's the role of the consoler in chief. Uh, that the president does bring that attention. Because one of the things that's going to happen is this is going to fade off the news. As tragic as this is, every time we have another big event, it will fade off the news and people will be further and further away from this. Uh, the FEMA and the other federal agencies, they don't leave when the cameras leave. And this is going to be a long-term recovery. It's going to be a very difficult recovery. But within the capabilities and the authorities that Congress has granted to federal agencies, they're going to be there as long as it takes. 
And what are some of those challenges moving forward? We obviously have already talked about housing, but what else can we look at that's going to be a, a big problem, especially like you said, when the, when the media kind of fades away and there's not as much attention on this issue? Well, I think it's important to understand that Congress never directed the federal agencies to make people whole. Uh, this has always been based upon the idea that the majority of people would have insurance, that the non federal agencies or our nonprofits, what we call the national, uh, you know, the, the non-governmental agencies, you know, Red Cross, Salvation Army, uh, the proliferate of, of organizations, many of that are local that are working in these areas and supporting this, that this is a team approach. And so part of the challenges will be identifying who had insurance and who didn't, and will that insurance allow them to be able to rebuild? Uh, for those that didn't have insurance or were renters, uh, what does that look like? FEMA can provide housing assistance, and, and, and in many cases, this will be renting uh, hotels and motel rooms, possibly, for up to 18 months. And then you get down to, okay, of the residents who lost their homes, uh, what's the long-term solution? And I think this is what's going to be important for people to understand, that many of these response organizations, the volunteer groups, uh, they'll get an influx of assistance now but influx isn't going to meet the long-term needs. So it's gonna be important that people understand that a lot of this will be done with the volunteer agencies, not just with government. And without their support a year from now, it gets increasingly difficult. And again, this is an island, it's not near the mainland. It's gonna require uh, a lot of shipping. It's gonna be more expensive uh, housing costs. I think average housing costs, uh, people are saying you know, a million plus, uh, and a lot of this is going to come down to a combination of what the federal government can provide, what housing and urban development can provide through their programs, and then a combination of local and national voluntary organizations uh, supporting the recovery for these survivors. One more thing we should probably touch on is I believe Jason Momoa came out this week and said that there was a, an instance that he saw of, of a scam pretty much where his voice was being impersonated asking for donations. If people are going to make donations, I know there's going to be a lot of avenues for them to do so moving forward with Hawaii. What should they do to make sure that that money is going to the right place? Well, I would go to the governor's website where they're listing uh, information about what's available and what organizations they're working with. The other group I'd work with for the national organizations is the National Organization Volunteer Active and Disasters, uh, National VOAD, uh, which is a group that is a collection uh, umbrella agency of a lot of different groups. And there's other you know, assets online to look at charitable giving and check out organizations. Uh, but this will be uh, one of the unfortunate side effects that we see in disasters is people taking advantage, both people wanting to help, but also, uh, which is really, I think, most concerning to me, is people taking advantage of those survivors. Uh, We've seen it where people have had personal information captured and then used against them, people applying for assistance in their name fraudulently, and then they can't get help. Uh, so this will be something that I'm pretty sure the uh, the state's attorney general and, and their folks will be looking at is protecting the survivors from being ripped off by people and also making sure that people that are trying to help their money goes to where it does the greatest good. Anything else we're missing? It's again, I think this tragedy unfortunately it will play out somewhere else and it will happen again somewhere else and it may not necessarily be a fire it'll be another event and this is uh, unfortunately we're seeing these events occurring more frequently 
financial impacts to both the government but also to the volunteer organizations. So just remember in the disasters, get money, not stuff, reach deep and it will happen again. Very important message. We thank you for taking the time and uh, appreciate your time. All right, thank you. That will do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Tomorrow, with just days away from the first Republican primary debate hosted by Fox News, director of the Fox News poll and member of the Fox News decision desk, Darren Shaw, joins to discuss what to expect and how old is too old. Lawmakers in the United States are starting to work well beyond retirement age. Jared Halpern and Chad Pergram examine whether there should be age limits for members of Congress. I'm Ryan Schmelz. Thank you for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.